Before we get into today's episode, we just wanted to fill you in on a couple of updates that are happening in our lives. So first off, our theatre show, The Last Show Before We Die, is coming to the Yard Theatre from the 8th of January to the 20th of January. That's in London. In Hackney Wick. Yes. The so, beating heart of Hackney. Yeah, so if you fancy coming <laughs> along, then go to our Instagram. We have the link in the bio Yeah, to buy tickets. We can't wait. And it's selling pretty fast. So if you want to come, snap them up fast. Bring your friends, bring your lovers. The next thing is that Mary has been making Christmas cards. Yeah. Not just any Christmas cards, guys. I feel shy about it now. Yeah, I can see. (laughs) They've been making queer Christmas cards. And guys, they are so beautiful. Mary's literally hiding their face. Mary's an incredible artist and you should go and look at them. They're on our website, lifeofby.com. Um, They're all printed on recycled paper and 10% of the profits go to Stonewall Housing, which is an LGBT charity that supports LGBTQ people experiencing homelessness. So there's literally no excuse, guys. Go and buy them. They are so beautiful. It would make Um, my day. Yeah. Uh, they're on our website at lifeofby.co.uk did you see that that. (laughs) (laughs) i'm so sorry i'll just say it again (laughs) lifeofby.co.uk we realized the other day that we've had this website set up for years and we never mention it on this podcast (laughs) i think it's had about three thousand visits in its whole lifetime but we do get emails via it you can get in touch via the contact form there's a contact which we also yeah we we don't man it very well but and we upload all the episodes there eventually <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> a bit of a lag with the release sometimes yeah anyway so those are the updates and now we're going to do the actual episode everyone hi i'm mary higgins and i'm l potter and this is episode 28 of life of bi and today we're going to be looking at the queers for palestine movement in the uk now we just want to start this episode by saying it's a massive topic yeah but the news has been pretty bleak over the past few weeks awful and we wanted to do something that like acknowledges what's happening but also keep uh, this specific lens on the stuff which is looking at it through queerness yeah so we're staying very focused on like the Quiz of Palestine movement, what its aims are, and also like the criticisms levied at it by um, the press. Yep. Uh, so, you know, I feel, I'm excited, you know, it's feels weird to say this, but I'm excited to do this episode. I'm excited too. It was very empowering to do this research and yeah. like get into the nitty gritty of it. Yeah. So, uh, but we're just going to start by doing some possibly needless recapping yeah lots of you probably already on top of what's happening but we needed to start from somewhere also we have listeners other other places in the world that's true but since october 7th hundreds of thousands of people in the uk have been protesting israel's war on gaza and calling for a ceasefire yeah so these protests can look like sit-ins some of them are sing-ins like there's picket lines outside arms factories Mm -hmm. 
Um, but the ones that have been that have got the most press attention are the fortnightly national pro-Palestinian marches for peace. Yes. Yeah, so this uh, last weekend in the UK saw like local action and smaller marches like all over the country. Mm-hmm. I went to a really really great one in Haringey actually and it's so unusual to go to protest in your local area in your local area I was really inspired by it because normally they're all very Westminster focused yeah and And we're actually recording this on the 22nd of November um and they've just called a four-day uh pause on everything I think it's important to contextualize when we're recording a temporary truce and a hostage swap uh, because things can change really fast um but, yes, but the march that has the marches that have been gaining the most attention are fortnightly, and they're the national marches, so like mm-hmm. the big ones through Westminster. Yeah. And the last one of those was on the 11th of November, so that's uh, Armistice Day in the UK. Uh huh. And, and it was massive. We were both it there. It was huge. Uh, the the press says, well, the organisers thought that there were about. 800,000 people, but the BBC was reporting 300,000. I mean, I have never been at a bigger march. It was massive. It It took us four hours to leave Hyde Park. Yeah. They Um, did put the queer block, I do have to say this. (laughs) The queer block started, that's that's the group that we were protesting with, um, and we arrived and everyone's sort of like around this little fountain. And there are so many people that you just like can't see anything around you. Anyway, it transpires that that fountain is nowhere near an exit. <laughs> to it's like classic. So it was this like weird, so like growing, a sort of dawning realization that, that there's like leave. massive people moving towards the fences. We're not moving towards an exit. They were just getting stuck. It's actually really dangerous when you think about it. It was. I mean, like it wasn't like hooligans. We weren't like oh, desperate no, no, to no, get no, out. No, but not, yeah. but you realize people were just climbing over that fence. Anyway, it was terribly badly organized. Yeah. And I did hear someone say. <laughs> Imagine what the queers would do if we could organise. <laughs> Imagine what we could do if we could, like plan this. No, but I have been to some beautifully organised protests. Yeah. It was just, There's it was not, an oversight. It's, it was <laughs> unfortunate. And like, you know, there were so many people, you'd be forgiven. Mobility was difficult, but uh, also the other thing, uh, there was this huge like moral panic stirred yes. up by our ex-home secretary, Suella Bravman. Foreign secretary? Uh, foreign. Ah. Uh, Home. <laughs> Home Secretary. It's confusing because then David Cameron came in to replace the Foreign Secretary who replaced Suella Bravo. Yeah, it's hard to stay on top. Oh, I don't know God, if some, if some of our listeners Tories. are in the States, but like, believe me, it's a mess over here. Yeah, so there's this huge moral panic which was kicked up by this column that she wrote, which meant that far-right protesters went... No, what do they call them? Well, the column was about the fact that it was on Armistice Day. Yeah. So there's like, traditionally... One minute, two minutes of silence on the 11th of November. Yeah, for to remembrance. Remember soldiers who died in the war for the UK and people wear little red poppies on their chests. Yeah. Um, but Suella Braverman stirred up this panic that protesters were going to go to the Cenotaph in central London and deface it, which obviously is not was not part of the plan well even before that like the the sort of like general anxiety was that yeah how dare you have a pro-palestinian march on armistice day it's like we're calling completely forgetting that for a the ceasefire peace anyway, it was crazy it was just sort of like an unnecessary polarizing of these two uh necessary things like remembrance is a, is a good policy yeah we should remember history but remembrance- it's important but like it's crazy to prioritise re- remembering 
a war the in the past from the war yeah to the people that are dying right today. now yeah anyway um the marches, the march itself was amazing. And it was. And they are some of the biggest and also like the most diverse marches I've ever been to uh-huh. in my short life. Yeah. But they demonstrate the huge amount of um, support for the pro-Palestinian movement in the UK. In fact, I've heard people calling it a majority movement. I've tried to find... A definition for that. Facts for that, like what that represents. But basically, the like uh, loads of people in the UK feel horribly misrepresented by a government that just refuses to listen the government and its opposition to be frank um and the marches uh sort of combine there are people there are very young people there are old people much older people yeah there are um there are orthodox Jews. jews yeah yeah and black lives matter sisters uncut everyone marching together it is a moment of amongst all the bleakness of the of what's happening in Gaza, there is, I have personally anyway, sort of like through the, through the sort of general feeling of despair, there are, these marches have been like little beacons Mm -hmm. of hope because people protests are, they're they're very inspiring. Like they give you hope for change Mm -hmm. and they give you hope in like the power of people Mm -hmm. gathering together and that being like a true sense of democracy. One of the groups that has been receiving uh, particular critical attention in these marches and in the protests is the Queers for Palestine group. So on the 9th of November, the Telegraph, famously well-loved newspaper <laughs> by the left. <laughs> yeah, right-wing broadsheet. Um, published an article by a dude called Brendan O'Neill with the headline, Queers for Palestine Must Have a Death Wish. And we're going to go into the ins and outs of his argument. But I just want to introduce you to uh, our guest today, who is Brendan O'Neill himself, no, played by El Potter. <laughs> I um, really yeah, have the urge to be like, like on the deal on the BBC, we asked Brandon O'Neill for an interview, but he declined. We didn't ask him, but he, he would decline. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> here is the, the next, next best, best thing. thing. <laughs> um, El Potter, what are you going to do for him? Well, I haven't made many character choices. I'm going to try not to be too odious because I think part of what we're doing mm. is like, we're, tr- we're going to listen to his points and then we're going to really, we're going to really deconstruct them, you know? So I'm not going to take the piss in my characterization that sounds like a good choice yeah but I, I want people to know that i'm speaking these words and i do not support them in his article for the telegraph brendan o'neill argues that queer solidarity with palestine is ridiculous because there is surely no way gay people would cheer on a state infamous for its loathing of homosexuals he then goes on to say For all their zaniness, surely not even purple-haired post-gender activists would take to the streets, pride flag in hand, to champion a country that would jail them if they're lucky and bump them off if they're not. So at this point in the article, O'Neill is referring to the real facts that queer Palestinians face prosecution and sometimes even death, um... In a survey of 175 nations and their and their acceptance of gay and gender non-conforming people, Palestine came uh, 130 in place 130 after Yemen and the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
O'Neill writes, The queers for Palestine would literally be better off in the notoriously homophobic petro-kingdom of Saudi Arabia than in their favourite victim nation. He then goes on to argue that Israel acts as a haven for Palestinians, allowing them freedom from homophobia and that, therefore, chanting for Palestinian freedom from the river to the sea is the same as damning queer Palestinians to a life of persecution with no possibility of escape. The removal of Israel and the emboldening of Hamas would make life intolerable, unlivable, in fact, for gay Palestinians. This is what happens when advertising one's virtue takes precedence over thinking carefully about other people's needs, when the narcissistic needs of spoiled Westerners are accorded more importance than the rights of faraway peoples. All that matters in the self-regarding moral universe of Queers for Palestine is the warm glow experienced by those who march behind that deranged banner. Actual Palestinians gay, straight, whatever, are little more than bit-part players in the self-promoting morality plays of well-off Westerners keen to advertise their decency to the world. (sighs) Hmm. Yeah, so uh, there's a reason we bothered to, like, quote this thing. Yeah. Um, We found it... It was a horrible thing to read and it made us very angry, Mm -hmm. but we think there's going to be some merit in, like deconstructing its logic kind of like shout out to philosophy tube that's what abigail thorne does um but basically all you need to know is that he thinks that it makes no sense that there's no logic to the queers of palestine movement because Mm. you supporting it's he sees it as like supporting a homophobic nation essentially so he's like that doesn't make any sense it's crazy it's wokeness Uh gone mad it's snowflakes it's like people disconnected yeah and i think you know when we were when we found this article i thought oh i wonder what he's written about the about queer movements in the past Mm. if he really cares about this one and i found an article that he wrote in 2019 in the spectator in which he calls pride quote an invitation to narcissism constant self-gazing and self-celebration so um I well, think. he loves those words yeah, for us. Because yeah. in in that article, he's got self-regarding and self-promoting. Yeah. And then here he's been self-gazing and self-celebration. He's really taken the um, Freudian narcissism argument mm. about hom- homosexuality to, to the heart. core. Yeah, yeah. That's, really, yeah. that's really gone in. What we're going to try and do now, I would say like, there's a, I would say there's some pretty blatantly homophobic language in that yeah. article. Like oh, the yeah. purple-haired gender act, like all that stuff. Yeah, I... Yeah, as a as a formerly purple-haired person, <laughs> I, take, I take a lot of umbrage. I take a, I take a dim view. Yeah. I'm like, what are you saying? He's also the author of the book Anti-Woke, you yeah. know? Like, this but, is what we're dealing with. Yeah, but but putting gonna, all that to yeah. one side, we're going to try not to just, like, answer vitriol with vitriol. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to take, take the higher ground. We're going to try and scour this article for facts. We're basically going to fact-check it. Um, O'Neill's argument has some serious holes. Well, firstly, he misrepresents the aims of the movement for ceasefire. So when O'Neill equates the protest as aiming for... Go on, else. The removal of Israel and the emboldening of Hamas. He's actually twisting the facts because people are primarily marching 
for a ceasefire in Gaza and to end the destruction there. Yeah, so specifically, and we are going to outline all of the things that the movement campaigns for because Mm -hmm. they're all really important. It's campaigning for the right of self-determination for the Palestinian people. The right of return for the Palestinian people. For the immediate withdrawal of the Israeli state from the occupied territories. Against the oppression and dispossession suffered by the Palestinian people. In support of the rights of the Palestinian people and their struggle to achieve these rights. To promote Palestinian civil society in the interests of democratic rights and social justice. To oppose Israel's occupation and its aggression against neighbouring states. And in opposition to racism, including anti-Jewish prejudice and Islamophobia and the apartheid and Zionist nature of the Israeli state. So, in short, there's no aim in there about the destruction of Israel entirely. It's talking about withdrawing from occupied territories. Mm -hmm. And there's absolutely no mention of Hamas. We're talking here about the Palestinian people and the rights of those people. And people have rights no matter what government or, like, who leads them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, this is all in the context that since October 7th, Israeli bombs have flattened, at time of recording, over 50% of Gaza's buildings, including schools, homes and hospitals, killing over, I think it's 11,000 people at time of recording. At least, I mean, you know. 4,000 of which are children. Yes. um, Which we've talked about a bit, actually, because there's lots of stuff in the news about um, referencing women and children in terms Mm -hmm. of, like, as a way to pull on heartstrings about deaths. That we yeah. sort of like, because they represent purity in a way that's actually quite like anti-queer theory. So it's interesting that it's in there. Yeah. But nevertheless, those are the facts. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there is a reason that we've decided to like look at this article yeah. in detail. Um, because there is a genuinely interesting question that is like hovering underneath his frankly horrible writing. Um Which is, why are queers showing up in support of Palestine, given that Palestine does admittedly have a pretty horrendous record of LGBT rights and still criminalises same-sex activity? Like, is this a contradiction in terms? And it's also important to acknowledge that this isn't an argument that's just parroted by this particular right-wing columnist, Um, in this particular right-wing paper, it's actually an argument and a question that lots of queer people have been asking. And so it's worth engaging with it properly. Okay, so we're into the deconstruction phase of the episode now. Welcome. Welcome. Get your hard hats on. Hi-viz, people. And we're going to be referring a lot to the writing and thinking of Dr. Syed Arshan, Associate Professor of Peace and Conflict at Swarthmore College and author of the book Queer Palestine and the Empire of Critique. He is speaking in an interview with the Oxford Society for International Development. We have to be careful not to talk about homophobia in Palestinian society in a way that contributes to the dehumanization of Palestinians, which then can be weaponized to further the case for the oppression of Palestinians or military occupation over Palestinians. You can find the link to the full interview in our show notes, and we really recommend listening to it. Obviously, he goes into more detail than we have time to include here. 
So central to Dr. Atshan's argument is the fact that the queer struggle in Palestine must always be contextualized within the context of occupation. So I think where it's very unique is that the queer Palestinian movement has to explicitly link itself to an anti-colonial, decolonial struggle against Israeli military occupation and uh, oppression. And we see those struggles as intimately linked. In his book, Dr. Atshan actually coined a term for the dual oppressions that queer Palestinians live under. He calls it ethno-heteronormativity because there's the ethnocratic system that privileges Israelis over Palestinians, doubled with the heteronormative system, which enacts homophobic oppression at the same time. And this dual oppression throws up some potential contradictions within the queer Palestinian movement because of the ways in which the nationalist and queer struggles seem to be in tension with each other. For example, like how is it possible to challenge homophobia within Palestinian society without playing into the dehumanising colonial discourse that justifies Israeli occupation on the grounds that its people are, like, barbaric and uncivilised. Hire Brendan O'Neill. Yeah, exactly. And on the other hand, how is it possible to build a Palestinian liberation movement without prioritising the nationalist struggle over the queer struggle? But we're going to come back to that question later. So let's start with that first question. How can we challenge homophobia in Palestinian society without justifying the occupation? Yes, because that's exactly what Israeli pinkwashing is, right? Yeah, so you might have seen the term pinkwashing about on social media and stuff. And actually, Dr. Atshan has a great definition. Pinkwashing is a term that activists and academics have used to describe an Israeli state campaign of trying to draw attention to a purported advanced LGBTQ rights record in Israel in order to detract attention away from Israel's gross violations of Palestinian human rights. So the argument basically is it's a simplistic one. This notion that there's Israel on one hand, there's Palestine on the other, as if these are two separate entities, even though we know they're really ultimately one interlinked entity under Israeli sovereign control, and that the former is a queer haven and the latter is this homophobic, uncivilized, barbaric place. Obviously, as Dr. Atsham points out, the picture, the real picture, is a lot less binary when you take a closer look. It's not as if there's no homophobia in Israel. If you're a white, Ashkenazi, Jewish, cisgender, gay man who's wealthy and you live in Tel Aviv, life is pretty good. If you're a black, Ethiopian, Jewish, Israeli, queer woman who's poor living in South Tel Aviv, Life is really, really hard, right? So whether you have a queer empowerment or not in Israel really depends on so many factors. And it's very, very reductionist to just see Israel as this gay haven. And it's also, like, it's not as if there's no, like, absolutely no queer acceptance or queer agency in Palestine at all. Yeah, Dr. Atshan is a queer Palestinian. Yeah. My experience and the experience of my friends and activists and others like me who similarly are empowered in Palestine we can't exist in the pinkwashing logic because Palestine should only be understood as this totally homophobic, quote-unquote, backwards place. But we know that the opposite extreme are people who are threatened to be killed by their family, disowned by their families, and there's everything in between. But we don't see that spectrum of queer suffering and oppression as well as queer agency within the Palestinian context. So there is like a whole 
spectrum of experience and that's a word that dr akshan uses Mm. this idea of a spectrum rather than a binary Uh and like we have to resist the pink washing logic because it turns that spectrum into a moral black and white which is then used as an, as an Israeli tool of oppression. Yeah, or a way to ridicule the international movement of queers for Palestine as if it makes no sense. Yes. So like one of the ways that the, that Telegraph dude, Brendan O'Neill, critiques the queers for Palestine movement is by imagining that queers calling for a ceasefire are living in a self-regarding moral universe. That's a quote from him. Yeah, so we were like... What, what does, does that, that even mean? mean? What does that even mean? Uh, I, I mean, I think what he means by that is that like Western queers are sort of like blindly siding with an apparently oppressed group, mm. oblivious of the fact that like that oppressed group would, uh, the quote is, jail them if they're lucky and bump them off if they're not. Which is just like, oh, just such a horrible, horrible, horribly, horribly like casual way to talk about something really fucking serious. Uh, throughout the article, he truly does seem to like take a relish in the idea of queer people dying. Yeah. It's one it's, of the reasons it, it was like horrible dis- to read. It's disgusting. Um, but, and yet, like, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. But somehow, in that whole diatribe against shocking Palestinian homophobia, O'Neill completely fails to mention that same-sex sexual activity is prohibited in Gaza under the British Mandate Criminal Code Ordinance of 1936. There the you British. go. The British colonialism come back yeah. to bite us in the butt and, like it's christianity again that you know we've we covered this in series one of life of by yeah so with the balfour declaration in 1917 the uk was instrumental in the creation of the state of israel within palestine so like as a country we have a very real responsibility for all the hundreds of civilians dying in gaza every day Mm. and for the state of lgbtqia rights there yeah and the queer bloc understands this of course O'Neill completely fails to mention it. He's too busy using Palestine's queer rights record as an excuse to allow Israel to continue bombing Gaza with, like, complete impunity. Yeah, in his article, he mentions two Palestinians who were murdered for being gay by fellow Palestinians, which is obviously awful, and we don't stand for it. But he doesn't even mention once the 11,000, thus far, Palestinians who have been killed by Israel's bombs, and that's just since October 7th, not to mention the decades of conflict before then. So, like, I'm still not entirely sure what he means, but I think he's the one living in a self-regarding moral universe. I think so. Because if if we, if we, if by self-regarding moral universe, we mean you're, like, oblivious yes, to... Yes, blinkered. Blinkered to everything else happening. It's like he, an international context. It's yeah. like, no, no, you're blinkered. He's, he's completely failed to mention some, like, really important aspects... And for someone who doesn't seem to give literally a shit about queer rights, Mm -hmm. he's like, for the purpose of this article, for the purpose of ridiculing, like, UK queers, Mm -hmm. he's, like, only focusing on that part of the struggle. Yeah. I don't know if we're doing the, uh, what Abigail Thorne does so well. No. Which is managing to keep emotion out of it, but I find that very difficult. But then again, like, she's looking at actual philosophers, and this guy, we've chosen a thing that's got nothing to do with philosophy. Like, one of the reasons this argument is so hard to pick apart is, like, it isn't following any kind of logic. Yeah. It's purely fueled by hate and fear. Yeah. And so it doesn't make sense. Self-regarding moral universe, in reference to Queers of Palestine, was really hard for us to get our heads around, because we're like, what do you mean? Like... If if you're in solidarity with a, another country, how is that self-regarding? 
Like, it's not like the only thing... He seems to think the only people get from marches is a sense that they're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. His understand His understanding of, like, youth movements and the left is that it's all about pride and, like, mm. this, like, elevation of self. Yeah, and it tells us a lot more about his... <clears throat> what his political stance says about his own self-opinion, right? That he reads that in other people. What do you mean? Like, he must be really... To completely misunderstand the point of people marching, to to assume that that's about a f- like self obsession, seems to me to prove his own self obsession. That he can't imagine a world in which it isn't about him. Hello, listener. Just popping in to say that if you like this podcast and if you're learning anything from it, please consider paying us for our work. Life of Bi is supported by Patreon and we have a lovely bunch of people who pay us a little bit each month and it helps us to keep this podcast going. So if you have the means and if you like the podcast, please consider donating at patreon.com forward slash life of Bi. Thanks. Okay. Now on to that second potential contradiction within the queer Palestinian movement. Remember that? Oh yeah. How is it possible to build a Palestinian liberation movement without prioritising the nationalist struggle over the queer struggle? But Dr. Atshan thinks the answer to that one is actually really simple. You know, all systems of oppression are inextricably linked, interlinked, and we can argue that one system of oppression should be the priority over the other. And this is a struggle that we face in the LGBTQ Palestinian movement because we have a lot of people who actually really think this is not a priority. Talking about queerness, it's a luxury. It's something that belongs to the West. It's not really applicable to our local context. Who cares if two men or two women can sit together in bed, etc.? Yeah, and I would say that is that is a bit complicated because on the one hand, like you could argue that if people are being bombed every day, gay rights is not the priority i can see a sort of like tentative sense in that uh-huh. but like uh and in fact that when i first read um o'neill's article that was basically what it made me jump to yeah as in i was like because uh, i hadn't honestly i hadn't looked into that much i knew that and Palestine was not a great place to be queer, but I didn't know a lot about the ins and outs uh-huh. of that or like how horrific it could be. And so I was a bit like, whoa, that is bad. And yeah. then I was like, I was, and then so there was my brain was sort of like panicking. And I was like, yeah, but it doesn't matter because they're being bombed every day. So like queer rights can wait. Yeah. And we actually like hit upon this uh, idea that you introduced me to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes. That was like the first. Um, that was our first kind of answer to that. Yeah. Um, so that um, I came across this in, my, in a counselling course. So it's talking about an individual. So I don't know how applicable it is to like a political context. But the idea of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it looks like it's a it's a model. So it looks like a little um, triangle pyramid. And it's all about like the different needs, the hierarchy of needs that someone has. So on the bottom layer, it's like physiological needs, like water, shelter, food, basically survival. And it works up in terms of importance until you reach at the very top of that pyramid is like self-actualization. The idea being the like theory behind that is that it's like no point 
that there is no point counselling someone who doesn't who isn't able to meet their physiological needs uh-huh. like they don't have the groundwork they don't have a foundation from which to get into sort of like personal development yeah that's the like theory behind that i'm sure there are things that counter even as i'm saying i can i can think of mm-hmm. ways in which counseling i don't know maybe not counseling specifically but like help like yeah, emotional actually. help would provide something yeah. but i could also just be like wrong it's true that so basically i was thinking about that and i was like yeah, you, can I, you can you judge a country on its uh, queer rights when it's being ceaselessly bombed yeah and i think i definitely before we started researching this this episode i was like well you've got you've got to sort one thing out before you can sort the next thing out right yes. like that i had this kind of linear understanding of like we can we can solve this and then we'll solve like the problem of queer rights there but then if you're saying that argument you're basically saying gay rights don't matter because you're being bombed yes like that that's the extreme version of that argument but it should be gay rights do matter and you're being bombed like both things both things are true gay rights are at stake because human rights are at stake So there's a word for all this, Mary, and we haven't really mentioned it. Yes, so far. And it's the it's the big idea for the day. It's the big idea that O'Neill fundamentally misunderstands, yeah, which is solidarity. Mm. Like what is it? What is solidarity? O'Neill appears to think that solidarity with Palestine is the same is like literally the same as wholesale championing mm-hmm. of Hamas and Palestinian law even if that law prosecutes queer and gender non-conforming people. Is he right? No. No. He's that's... not. His, his understanding of queerness is that it's a single-issue struggle, and it isn't. No, like, the history of solidarity shows us that. So we just wanted to talk a little bit what that, about what that word actually means, because, like, left movements are Rely built on, on it. solidarity, Like, yeah. there is a reason that there are all these different groups there. It's because, like, you have to see a common struggle uh-huh. in this. I think he's... Big context. Yeah, he sees this, like, splintering of identity politics, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, really what identity politics has done is, like, highlight how differently um, people experience the world. And yeah. that's true that that does initially mean that there are, like, lots of smaller groups. Yeah. But it then means that when you join together as a force, as we've been mm-hmm. seeing at these huge marches... Mm-hmm. It's like fundamentally we're all fighting for the same thing. Yeah. Which is like equality, freedom, human rights. And in various ways we're being like uh, let down. And that's what we recognise in Palestine, yeah. right? Is they're not being, they're being like the Gaza. I mean, this truce is great news, but like... Western powers have abandoned the Gaza, like literally not doing anything. Mm. And Black Lives Matter movements have talked about like how that reflects a historic struggle with racism that like um, going to Israel or the West Bank is like returning to a Jim Crow era of America um, and how what the apartheid looks like there. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's a shared struggle. And it like groups have this memory. Sorry, I'm, I'm rattling now. It's okay. But yes, groups, the idea that like you have you have memory of a time of oppression. Like obviously queer rights in the UK are not it's not it's not an end. We have not 
finished the struggle (laughs) yeah yeah it's not perfect but we have a lot more freedom than people in palestine Mm. and so but we can remember when we didn't like even if i don't physically remember i'm 28 yeah if i don't remember what it was like in the 80s you still have solidarity with yes that's the the power of community like he he brendan o'neill thinks so much about like the individual it's like no no these movements are tied by community and history which is like i don't need to have experienced the exact same as thing as you. Yeah. I'm going to fight for your right. Like, yeah, I it? don't have to have a shared experience of oppression, but I can understand that the condition of being oppressed. Yeah. Or I can understand. Yeah, there's so many. I can have empathy. Yeah. It's like a really basic thing. And like, I think people find it a lot easier to understand when the struggles feel more adjacent, i.e., like queer struggle in terms of like sexuality versus like yeah. trans rights yeah like that alliance seems obvious so people don't question it but you're like no no a lot of the people marching for trans rights are not trans mm. we have a word for that they're allies mm. it's like a really important function you can't do anything without it and like within our own living memory, like 2020 was so fucking important for that in terms of race. I also think that in this in this instance, it's it's just a really this like supposed contradiction in queer rights and uh, fighting for Palest for peace for peace in Gaza and um, against occupation. I just think it's become a really um, convenient excuse to like abstain from having an actual opinion about what's happening uh and i think that it's sometimes easier for people to because this is happening now yes it feels like it's more complicated for people to have an opinion but like we feel very we can look back on like, well, actually the armistice stuff is really helpful because you can look back on the war and a hundred years ago and be like, this was right. And this was wrong. Mm. And people are kind of pussyfoot around, around talking about things like that now, because like, as if it's too complex for morality. Yeah. But in like 50, 60 years, it'll be so fucking clear. I think this uh, idea of the the kind of comfortable lens that times that time gives us mm. is going to be really important as we go into our next episode. Yes, we're going to be going back to we're going to be looking at um, the lesbians and gays for minors. Yeah, there's the topic of that um, very successful film Pride. And Dr. Atshan puts this really beautifully: the importance of solidarity. Um, so this is actually from an interview he did with the gay times in june 2021 you're like a the gay times it's like the way that my mum talks about bbc iplayer the iplayer the gay times gay times all right okay okay gay times fine uh the interview what i was going to say is the interview is from 2021 just as a reminder to everyone that this conflict did not start on the 7th of october and people Mm -hmm. at dr atshan had been fighting 
for the freedom of Palestine and for queer rights in Palestine for decades. Anyway, he says, really beautiful thing, which I'm going to quote for you now. As long as this brutal reality continues in Palestine, the Palestinian people continue to be suspended from humanity and time. They live in existential limbo with no rights or enfranchisement. Anyone with a moral compass should, at the very least, care. Once people care, they will realise how they are connected to Israel-Palestine in very real ways. They are not simply spectators or bystanders, but they are complicit in maintaining the status quo. In order to resolve this, it is going to require efforts from the international community. The Palestinian people wage the struggle alone. Solidarity is invaluable. That was very beautifully read. Oh, Mary. thanks, Els. Um, before we go, we just want to leave you with, like, um, I guess... An example of queer solidarity. An example of queer solidarity um, that's happening here in the UK. Yeah, so uh, the Dyke Project have been using this um, information source called Queering the Map, mm-hmm. in which it's a people-powered map of the world in which like anyone can uh, write, write messages and upload it to yeah. this platform and the dyke project took um things that had been written by queer palestinians put them onto these little posters and then pasted those posters over what was in the tube carriages like adverts on the tube hacking advertising hack yeah hacking yeah. advertising um and we just wanted to like share some of those with you now but i just think that is like a really beautiful example of like the dyke project really intimately attempting to forge a connection between queers with queers in Palestine. Yeah, so here are some of those. The only thing that helps me bear living in Gaza is the sea and you. If I had known that bombs raining down on us would take you from me, I would have gladly told the world how I adored you. I'm sorry I was a coward. Please know, despite what the media says, there are gay Palestinians. We are here. We are queer. Free Palestine. So this is where we usually ask you to join our Patreon. But today, we also wanted to encourage our listeners to support some of the queer organisations working in Palestine. Um, You can find a link to those in the show notes. And show up to a march or a protest near you. Uh, It's never too late and it's never time to stop. And as usual, if you are enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you became a Patreon. It really helps us make episodes like this. Uh, We love making them. We love taking the time to do them properly. And your support helps us do that. Thank you. Life of Bi was made, hosted and edited by us, Mary Higgins and Elle Potter. Sound design and production by Tom Foskett Barnes. Life of Bi is supported by you, the listener. We have six new Patreons. Whoa! They are Swain, Robert, Lily, Katie, Eleanor and Clemmy. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, guys. Also, cheeky shout out to... Oh my God, what was his name? (gasps) 
Theo. Theo. If you're listening, we bumped into Theo at a Blind Boy podcast recording and had a really nice chat. And he listened so of Life of Bi, and it was really sweet. And remember to buy tickets to our theatre show Quick. at the Yard and buy Mary's Christmas cards, for God's sake. I just want to say. <laughs>